If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In early 20th century America, being diagnosed with tuberculosis was often a death sentence, and many of those who contracted the disease were cast out from society. The patients of New York City were sent to Seaview, a purpose-built hospital on Staten Island, which from 1929 onwards was staffed by a determined team of black nurses who risked their own health to care for their charges round the clock. I spoke to Maria Smilios to find out more about these heroic healthcare professionals who were part of the quest to find a cure for this deadly disease. So your book is called The Black Angels. Where does this name come from? The name The Black Angels came from the patients who called the nurses their black angels because the patients of Seaview were considered incorrigible consumptives by the city. Most of them ended up staying 400, 800, some were there for a thousand days. I looked at medical cards where one person was there 1,200 straight days. And so these nurses got to know them very intimately. And so when these nurses took care of these patients and they actually showed them that they were human beings who deserved to have somebody want to help them, even though there was no cure, they started calling them my black angel and they would send them Christmas cards. And that's how the name came about. And we'll be talking about these nurses in more detail later in the conversation. But before then, I want to drill down into what exactly tuberculosis is and whether it was a death sentence. Yes, tuberculosis was a death sentence. Um, during the 19th and early 20th century, 70 to 90% 
of the urban population in Europe and North America were infected and 80% who developed tuberculosis died. So it was a staggering number. It was something like one in seven. It stirred people's most potent fears. There was no cure for it. The only thing that people could suggest was rest and fresh air. And for those who are not familiar with the disease, because it's a disease that we really don't talk about in countries that have good healthcare systems, um, tuberculosis is not just a disease that affects the lungs. Um, and unlike the plague or smallpox or any other diseases that come on swift and strong, raging with boils and pustules and these symptoms that come out right away, tuberculosis is wily, it's slow, it's stealth. The microbe has been beautifully rendered and designed to torture and kill slowly. And so by the time somebody starts showing symptoms, it could be months. And it usually starts with a listlessness and a cough and a malaise. And then there's the diagnosis. But TB doesn't only affect the lungs. It affects the brain. It affects the spine. It affects the organs. When it does go into the lungs, it consumes. That's why it was called consumption. It gnaws away at the muscles, at the tendons, at the vessels, and it pulverizes them and liquefies them. In the spine, it eats the vertebrae until they begin to collapse. Patients suffer grievously. They wither away. Their fevers climb and climb. Their skin becomes chalky and dry. Somebody compared it to a cadaver. That's, you know, they cough and spit up blood. They are ashen. And this can go on for years and years and years. Um, and so that is an overview of this disease. So at the turn of the century and well into the 30s, when these nurses come up, tuberculosis is rampant in the big cities, particularly in communities where people are living very close together, which was happening in the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the tenements. And is this how it comes to be politicized then? The disease had been politicized from the turn of the century. The then commissioner of health, actually, he was the chief medical officer of New York City, Herman Biggs, a bulldog of a man, loathed the consumptives of the city. They were people who lived on the margins of society. They were the castaways of, uh, we could say, of New York City. But mostly they were immigrants that had come to America looking for a better life and ended up getting sick. And he wanted them off of the island. And he was the one who implored the city to build a hospital. So the carelessness, as he put it, of these people would not continue to infect those who were careful. Um, and the city opened it up for the, what they said, the quote, deserving poor. So you can begin to understand how they believed some people should get care and other people shouldn't. Um, now, the problem was, at some point, nobody was seen as a deserving poor person. They were just seen as a sick person who needed to be off of the island of Manhattan and sent away to Seaview. So coming on now then to think specifically about Seaview, which is the focus of your book, it comes to be staffed primarily by black nurses because of a staff shortage. Can you tell us a bit more about this? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Yes. In 1929, the white nurses who worked at Seaview Hospital began quitting for a variety of reasons. Some said it was the commute, which was could take about three hours one way. Other people cited that it was the 12 to 14 hour days, and others just did not want to work with a deadly disease. At the end of the 1920s, there were a lot of opportunities for white working women in New York City. And there were a lot of jobs, secretaries, librarians, the New York Telephone Company had just erected this soaring Art Deco building downtown that they didn't have to go and risk their lives anymore. So they began leaving. And the city, not wanting the death rate to climb, had two choices. We either close the wards and let all of the people back into the city who were sick, or we find a solution. They knew the Great Migration had worked to bring up laborers. And so someone had an idea, why don't we call professional women, nurses, black nurses who could not find jobs down in the South because Jim Crow didn't allow them to work in white hospitals. And so there were thousands of unemployed black nurses in the South. And so that's what they did. They put out a call. They said it was a, quote, rare opportunity. They would give them housing good pay, and an education if they needed extra schooling, because some of them had only gone to training schools. Others had come from actual nursing programs in historically Black colleges. And so the call went out, and it moved down the Mason-Dixon line through the southern states, and the nurses began to come. Does that mean that medical segregation didn't exist in the North? Actually, it did. It was a little sneakier than the South. Um, one of the nurses' families said to me, Missouri's family, she's one of the main nurses in my book, had said to me, my aunt 
believed that at least down south, she came from Clinton, South Carolina. She knew where she could go. There was a sign telling her. When she came up north, it became a little confusing because she believed she could go somewhere, but realized she couldn't. And so in the city, there were only four hospitals that employed black nurses. There were no overt laws that said black nurses couldn't work there, but the systemic racism inside made sure that if they did hire black nurses, there was a very firm quota. And when they were hired, their lives were made miserable by the white supervisors. And so there were these internal gatekeepers that made sure the staff was ultimately white. Um, people had told black nurses that white nurses did not want to work near them. People thought um, that black nurses, white supervisors believed black nurses stole, they were incompetent, they couldn't lead, they couldn't take care of people. And so there was a really horrible perception of black nursing or black nurses. And was this also the case at Seaview? Yes and no. Seaview was desperate. And so when the black nurses began to come in the 30s, they had also hired a new supervisor, a woman named Miss Lorna Dune Mitchell, a white woman who had been the supervisor of Willard Parker Hospital, which was one of the predominant infectious disease hospitals in the city. And she came with a wealth of experience and her job basically was to retain and train a staff of nurses at Seaview, except her father was a Confederate medic and she came from the world of white nursing where these perceptions were the norm. It's a little complicated with her because Virginia Allen, who is still alive, will say that she trained an exceptional, exceptional group of nurses. And that is why they were able to be on the front lines of the cure. However, how she got there was terrible. Um, she stalked them in the hallways, waiting for them to make a mistake. She did not want them masking because she didn't believe in masks. She said that if they hand washed and they were careful, they wouldn't get sick. She prevented them at one point from transferring between hospitals if they wanted to leave. And so she really made their lives horrible in many ways. And did they get sick? Almost all of them tested positive for tuberculosis, but none of the nurses, the families that I interviewed, none of the nurses actually had active TB or died of tuberculosis. Many of them lived well into their 90s and died of other diseases, either cancer or just old age. And you mentioned that you interviewed a lot of the families. Can you tell us a bit more about some of these nurses that you write about? So Virginia Allen is considered to be one of the last living Black angels. She's still alive. Her aunt Edna, who starts off the book, was one of the first nurses who came to Seaview. She came from Savannah. She was born in 1900 into abject poverty. Her father was a preacher, an itinerant preacher. He reinvented himself. He had been a laborer. He had been enslaved. He walked off the plantation and reinvented himself in Savannah. And I say this because he had a heavy influence on her. He taught her to dream big. He inspired her to want to heal people. And so getting into school in Savannah was a big deal. There were 
far more children than there were seats. And so it was kind of like winning the lottery. And Edna's parents encouraged her to do well. She did well. She went to a nurse training school, except she couldn't find a job. And one day, an old teacher told her about Seaview. And as I say, she she at the time she was taking care of her younger sister. Her family had migrated north and they left her in Savannah with her younger sister who was five. And she was at the time 25 years old. And they kind of left her in this position where she couldn't go anywhere because she had this younger sister who was like a daughter to her in many ways. And so when the opportunity came, you know, Edna was kind of standing at this crossroad, you know, she could stay in Savannah with her sister and live a life. She had been clerking at the time. She couldn't find a nursing job that was, you know, hemmed in by the strictures of Jim Crow, or she could wager her life and go North. But that meant leaving her sister behind with a family member in Washington, DC. And that brings up a lot of things that, you know, when the nurses left, they left behind a lot. They left their families, you know, some left children, spouses, and they went by themselves. And so she chose to go North because she, number one, felt it was a calling. And number two, she knew it was the only way that her sister would have more opportunity than she did. And when they faced mistreatment when they arrived, in what ways did they resist? So this is interesting. Edna was a more quiet activist. And I say quiet because as opposed to Missouria, who came from Clinton, South Carolina and came to New York City because she wanted to be on the front lines of fighting against racism in nursing. You know, she wanted to join the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses and sort of be one of these people who would go out into the streets, whereas Edna was a more reserved type of activism. Edna also believed her family didn't know any of this history when I started to uncover it. Virginia didn't know that her grandfather had been a preacher. She didn't even know where her mother lived. I had gone down to Savannah and I started sending her pictures of her mom's house. And that's because Edna believed, she always said, why look back when you could look ahead? Whereas Missouri's belief was you have to keep looking back. You have to keep the past alive so people could understand. Both women made great advances, but collectively what the nurses did in New York City because the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses was headquartered in the city and also the NAACP, they had access to really influential activists at the time, you know, Du Bois for one. And so they became close with these activists and also with the black press. And they leaned on the press all the time. So anytime something happened, they walked in, the dining room had a placard, whites reserved for whites, they called the press. You know, somebody was being mistreated, they called the press. And so that's how it was unified, collective, sustained, long game effort. And we'll be talking about the press later in a different context. But for now, I want to change tack and focus on Seaview and what the experience would be like for a nurse who was treating TB patients in and out every day. So I want to give a little picture of Seaview Hospital for people who might not be familiar with it. Seaview was a sprawling complex. It had probably 30 to 40 buildings at its peak. It also had a children's hospital that was built in 1937. So when Edna went, the children's hospital had not been built yet. There were eight pavilions shaped in an arc and five floors. The wards were open wards, meaning there were no private rooms. On 
either side of the wards, left and right side, there were beds in rows separated only by a nightstand. Later, when it became overcrowded, there were beds running down the middle of the aisle and squashed into the corners. And so these open wards were where the patients were, and they were kind of separated by whether you were ambulatory or whether you were bedridden. And then there were two side wards that were for the, what they said, the incurables, who were really kind of people who were very, very sick. They would be in an ICU ward in today's world. And so the nurses, they checked in, they got their assignment for the day, and they began their rounds. They took their cart and they began their rounds. The ambulatory patients, they took vitals, they took sputum counts, and those they were able to care for a little more quickly. But the bedridden patients, they could be bedside for almost, you know, three hours trying to take care of, you know, they'd have to sit them up, bathe them, shave them, feed them, change them before, and then medicate them. And by medication, I mean simply like cod liver oil or whatever elixirs were prescribed by the doctor at the time because there was no real medication for tuberculosis. There were things that might control the symptoms, you know, codeine for coughs, morphine for pain, but there was nothing for the actual treatment of the disease other than rest and fresh air. And their days were long. They worked 12 to 14 hour days. Edna's commute was five and a half hours round trip. So their days were really just work, go home, sleep a few hours and come back. A lot of the patients were angry for being there. And so the nurses faced a lot of verbal abuse. Some of them got violent, especially on the men's ward. That was a rough ward. That's where Missouri worked. You know, men were constantly fighting, constantly yelling at each other. The way they talked was body. It sounded like a bar. And thinking about treatments, you mentioned there that they might be given cod liver oil or elixirs. What kind of surgeries were on offer? So the early treatment for tuberculosis was just sun and rest, but surgery, operations. Operations had become the kind of gold standard and operations turned to butchery. Bushels of ribs were cut out six to eight at a time to collapse the lungs the chest cavity was stuffed with wax packs, ping pong balls, anything that would suppress the, the lung and keep it collapsed. But then there was the secondary infections from the operations. And those were really deadly because, again, there were no antibiotics before 1935. Actually, 37 was the first time sulfa made it to the United States. And so people would get staph or strep infections. And that was really the the comorbidities. A lot of them came from those infections. Well, it's understandable in the face of such a terrifying disease why people were so desperate to find a cure. And your book covers several false dawns where people thought they'd found a wonder drug, but sadly it didn't live up to their hopes. Can you tell us about some of these? Yes. So the first one was a drug, uh, sulfa, which was discovered in Germany by Gerhard Domack. And it actually became the fir- one of the first antibiotics, sulfa, but it did not cure tuberculosis. So there were hosts of sulfa drugs where people did all different variations of the drug to try and see if it treated tuberculosis. In the United States, there was an incident called the elixir tragedy, which I talk about where a doctor in Tennessee wanted to dissolve sulfa. And that was part of the problem with sulfa. It didn't dissolve. And he worked 
out in Tennessee and his salespeople went to the rural places in Tennessee and said to him, Hey, if you can develop a cough syrup with a cherry flavor, you could sell it to all of the rural people, particularly children. And, and that population was heavily African American. And he had said in this had come later on when they were on trial for the tragedy that he caused because quote, colored people love cherry flavored cough syrups. And so at any cost, he said to his chemists, make me this syrup. And they did, except they put in diethylol, diethylene glycol, which is a poison. It's used as a paint thinner. And then he flavored it, bottled it without testing and sent it out to hundreds of pharmacies across America. And within months, kids started dying. And the FDA ran across the country and, and, you know, they crossed the country in cars. They, they, they put people on foot and they tried to recall as much as they could. And the death toll eventually reached a little over a hundred, which doesn't sound so high now after we've come out of COVID. But at the time it was harrowing because it shined a light on quack medicine and charlatans that had been making millions off of tuberculosis. Uh, some of the quack cures were really fantastic. People were eating slices of dog fat. They were inhaling the smoke of dried cow dung through reeds. Um, they were boiling mice and salt. And that, that just points to the desperation of people wanting to get well. And so after that tragedy, the, the real first antibiotic was streptomycin. And that was discovered at Rutgers University. And this antibiotic came from the earth. It was natural. It wasn't synthetic. Sulfa is a synthetic. It was, it's man-made. And the problem with streptomycin was that it worked. It worked at first, but there weren't any long-term clinical trials. Actually, the first long-term clinical trials were done in, in Britain on streptomycin in the late 40s after the war. But in the beginning, there were no long-term trials and it was very expensive to make. And so people started to realize that after four or five months, it stopped working. The microbe became resistant to it. But what it did do was it helps people at a certain stage get well enough so they could have surgery. But it was not sustainable because of the expense. And then people started to say, okay, some people will get it and some people won't. And there are stories of people dying in hospitals saying, if I only had some streptomycin. And then the next thing that came about was isoniazid, which actually worked. So those are the three main things that I touch upon in the book. I mean, there were hosts of other little things that happened in between. I don't want to say little because everybody was building on what they had, but all of these faults, you know, oh, this is the wonder drug. Oh, this is the wonder drug. Like anything that worked became a miracle drug or a wonder drug. And again, that points to the desperation of wanting to cure this um, disease. And how did the press play into that? The press loved it because they like stories. And at the time, the press in the 30s and 40s, that's all we had was really newspapers and radio. And so to sell newspapers, you put some great sensationalized story on the front. So everything became a wonder drug, a miracle cure. And then they would find the success story. It's kind of similar to now, the clickbait, but 
back then it was a headline bait, so to speak. You know, they had the newsboys on the corners down in, in New York City screaming the headlines of the day. Some newspapers were printed three times a day the morning, afternoon, and evening edition. And so they love these success stories. They also love the stories of failure because that's the other extreme. You know, you get people riled up and angry. So the press played a big part in pushing these sort of false narratives. So even when the cure was, I'm going to use the word discovered in quotes because Dr. Robichek did not discover isoniazid. It was discovered by Hoffman LaRoche. They, they made the compound and asked him if he wanted to put it into clinical trials with human beings. And it was the first time it would be used with humans. And so I guess you can say he executed those first trials when news leaked because he was not ready to tell the press. Um, they don't know how the story leaked out. There's different speculations. At one point, he was blamed for leaking the story out. Other people blamed patients. Other people said maybe it was a nurse. Who knows? The point is the story got out. And on February 21st, 1952, the New York Post ran this banner headline. It said, Wonder Drug, you know, to TB cured. And to clarify, these drug trials are at CVU. At Seaview. They were being done at Seaview. There were also a set of trials being done at another hospital in New York at Wheel Cornell. They were testing another derivative of isoniazid. And the two had decided that in April, they would announce the results. Well, the story got leaked out and it was in February. And so once the press got hold of it, Dr. Robichek's son, who's still alive, told me his father called it Black Thursday. He went into hiding in his office with his partner, Selikoff, because the halls were buzzing with television cameras. Photographers were clicking away. I mean, they, the, the wards had just become media frenzy. Even the commissioner of hospitals could not say anything. They really ran to do damage control. And even when they finally gave a press conference, they said, this is not a cure. We don't know if it's a cure. It looks promising. The press didn't care about that. It came out as the cure. They were like, for us, it's a cure. There are people who they were on death's door. Part of the, part of getting into the trial, the criteria was you had to be mortally ill. Death had to be imminent. So here were people who were ready to die. And now they were up and dancing in the hallway. One of the photographers, you know, told the women they started jitterbugging. And he snapped this famous, famous picture of these women jitterbugging. And they saw them in these satin robes with makeup and their hair done. And of course, this was the cure. It couldn't be anything but the cure. And was it? Yes and no. The drug took years to tweak. Seaview closed in 1961. Isoniazid had became and still is kind of gold standard. There are new drugs out on the market now, but isoniazid has saved tens of millions of lives. So yes, in one case, it was, the, it was the cure and it's still being used, but it did not cure all forms of tuberculosis. And now there's multi-resistant tuberculosis, which still runs rampant in TB burdened countries. Tuberculosis kills 1.6 million people a year and infects 10, over 10 million. The drug that they were giving people during the trials needed to be tweaked and, and in, given in combination with other drugs. So that took a long time. And so the trials continued going on for many years at Seaview Hospital. What role did the black nurses play in these trials? Having worked on the wards 
for almost two and three decades, some of these nurses, they knew the disease inside out. They knew its nuances. They knew how it ebbed and flowed. They knew how one day somebody could be sitting up and the next day they could hemorrhage and die. They understood how the moods, that how it affected people. They could tell somebody was getting sick just from the sound of their voice or if there was a different kind of infection. And Robichek had said, had it not been for them, none of those trials would have been possible. And why is that? Because they were bedside. They were on the front lines. They were the ones who administered the first doses of isoniazid, and they were told to watch the patients. So there were 92 who were chosen for this trial, and they were separated on two wards, 11 and 13. And the nurses watched those people all day long. They watched their mental state, their emotional state, their psychological state. They watched them when they slept and they kept copious notes, which Robotech would take at the end of the day with his partner and go down to the conference room and disseminate the information and begin to see patterns. And so to give you an example of how meticulous they were, they started noticing that people were twitching in their sleep, you know, minor twitches in their legs, and they would note it down or that there was a giddiness to them. And they began to wonder, well, is it us just that these people are well and we're not used to this, or is there something to that? And so they noted it. And so it was all those little tiny things that needed to be done to begin to tally what are the side effects of this? When do they happen? How do they happen? How do they affect men versus women? Without them, Robichek could not be bedside. You know, he had 92 patients. He could not watch them all day long. And so it really goes to show you not only how they worked as a united front, these nurses, but also how much they cared about their job. And for my final question today, then, having spent seven years researching this, what do you think this episode can tell us about American history more widely? There's a lot that this story can tell us. When I asked the families, what do you think the legacy of these nurses is? Many of them said the legacy is that they gave us a better life. I like to think of this story as a human story, one of triumph and of hope. It's a story that shows us that in times of need, there are always people who are willing to risk their lives and take care of others. And, you know, Virginia always says to me, you know, we are all we have, you and I, and if we don't take care of each other, nobody else will. And I think the Black nurses really exemplified that. And by taking care of people, they not only saved tens of millions of lives, but they changed the course of history. And I like to think of it as we should be inspired by these women, by not just their courage and their bravery, but their dedication to making the world a better place. They were just as invested in wanting to find a cure. They did not want to see people suffer anymore. And they never went in there with the intent of, I'm going to be part of something big and historical. As a matter of fact, when I had first started speaking with Virginia, I said to her, do you realize what what has happened here? And she said, no, we just did our jobs. That was Maria Smilios. Her book, The Black Angels, The Untold Story of the Nurses Who Helped Cure Tuberculosis, is published by Little Brown and available now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. 
This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. 